This is Brendan O'Hara. In December 2019, our constituency of Argyll and Butte elected him to be our Member of Parliament. As voters, we have put Brendan O'Hara into a position of great power, <laughs> prestige, <coughs> privilege. He has a large budget at his disposal. He can make big decisions that will significantly impact a large number of people. I wonder how Brendan O'Hara felt on the morning of the 13th of December when he discovered that he had been elected. Was it elation? Was it pride? Was it a nervous humility as he again sensed the scale of the task ahead of him? When MPs like Brendan O'Hara are elected, they all face a decision. How are they going to use the resources that are now at their fingertips? Are they going to use their position to feather their own nest, boastfully make a name for themselves? Or are they going to use their position to benefit their constituency? Of course, we all hope it's the latter. We hope they're going to act selflessly as public servants. After all, that is why we have elected them. We didn't choose them for their own benefit, their own step up the career ladder. We chose them because we believed that they would bring the biggest benefit to others, our community, and especially the most vulnerable within it. Now, this concept of being elected, of being chosen for the benefit of others, is a vital one for us to get our head around if we want to understand God's dealings with both Israel in the Old Testament and the role of the church today. And I hope this illustration is going to help us with today's passage. But just before we begin, there's one more thing we need to know. Before newly elected MPs begin their work, they are first sworn in to office. In other words, they make a covenantal promise. A covenantal promise to both the government and to their constituency. Now this making of a covenant is what we read about taking place with Israel at Mount Sinai. And it's also the response that we're invited to make as believers today. To set the scene, Israel are now three months on from being dramatically busted out of Egypt by God through the Passover. Remember the plagues, the passing through the Red Sea, the waters crashing down on the Egyptian army? Well, since then, Israel have been wandering through the desert while God has been miraculously feeding them with manna and drawing water from rocks for them to drink. Now it seemed to have been an aimless journey. The Israelites had no idea where they were headed, hence why they grumbled so much. But nothing could be further from the truth. God knew exactly where he was taking them to. He had a plan and a purpose. <coughs> very much in mind. So after six weeks, the pillar of cloud and fire brings the nation of Israel 
to Mount Sinai. It is the high point of the Exodus journey, not just in altitude, but in significance. To continue our opening illustration for a moment, when a general election takes place, there is much drama and fanfare. There are press conferences, televised debates, battle buses, hustings. The newspapers are full of stories. It takes over the news on the TV. There's posters on the walls. There's placards on lampposts. <coughs> Whether you vote or not, no one can miss that an election is taking place. But the bustle and the noise of a political election today pales into insignificance compared to the events of Exodus 19. At Mount Sinai, God turns up in person to elect the nation of Israel. And he doesn't want anybody to miss the significance of this moment. How do you grab the attention of 600,000 people and get them to listen to an important announcement? Well, if you read on in the rest of Exodus 19, you will find that God did it by putting on a truly terrifying spectacle. In Exodus 19, we read of thunder and lightning. We read of a mountain on fire with billows of smoke. We read of juddering earthquakes. We read of blasting trumpets. We read of ominous warnings. Warnings that are so bad, they match the colour of the gathering storm clouds overhead. God calls Moses up the mountain to speak to him. But he says, if in the meantime, if any of the people step onto the mountain, they'll be struck dead on the spot. This is a terrifying scene. What is going on here? Well, first of all, God is trying to get Israel to recognise the importance of what is about to take place. An election is not something to mess around with. They are not to miss the significance of what God is doing here. But secondly, God is also trying them to get them to realise who it is that is electing them. At this watershed moment in Israelite history, it's the utterly sovereign, piercingly holy Lord God Almighty who is choosing them for special duties. Now this is significant because as events unfold and we hear God calling Israel up to their elected responsibility, their number one job is to be holy. To be holy like God is holy. This is God's plan. He brings Israel all the way to Mount Sinai to elect them in the most dramatic of ways, to be his holy people. From Mount Sinai onwards, their task is to reflect his character out into the world. From this point on, they are to try and be like God in what they think, in what they say, and in what they do. They're to act justly. They're to look after the vulnerable. They're to welcome foreigners so they can tell them about God. 
In short, in Exodus 19 and 20, God turns up in this spectacle that Israel will never forget in order to elect them for a purpose. And the purpose is the blessing of others. Their constituency was not Argyle and Butte. It was the world. The world that God loves. The world that was broken by human beings. The world that God is trying to save. Now hopefully that's enough introduction for us to understand what is going on in this passage and the next three or four chapters that we didn't have time to read. But I now want to point out a few elements of this covenant relationship that are particularly pertinent to us as believers today. The first thing I want us to notice is that this covenant rests on God. It is based solely on his saving initiative. In other words, God acts first. Israel are just invited to respond. In other words, they do not merit this election whatsoever. When Israel arrive at Mount Sinai, God calls Moses up the mountain to meet him. And in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 19, God speaks to Moses some of the most important words in Scripture. And foremost amongst these, in verse 4, is the reminder that Israel are only here at Mount Sinai because God personally rescued them. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. When Israel was slaves in Egypt, they cried out to God. God saw their suffering. His heart broke for them. So he personally intervened. He swooped down like an eagle, picked up his young and carried them out of harm's way. And in doing this, God made Israel his own. And it's important we realise that this rescue operation of God was God remembering the covenant that he'd made with Abraham that we looked at last week. He was keeping his promise to look after the family of his people. So Israel are to be in no doubt that yes, they've got this spectacular event, this election to this amazing responsibility, but they don't deserve it. They didn't merit it. They did nothing to earn it. It rests solely on God. It is based solely on God's love. Not any merit of their part. As slaves in Egypt, they couldn't even help themselves. Let alone choose such a privileged role in the world. The second thing to notice about this covenant is that it requires a response of obedience. After God has reminded Moses of the great rescue he had made, he calls Israel to obey him. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then God is about to reveal to Israel the law. That's Exodus 20, which is the next chapter particularly the Ten Commandments that he wants them to keep. So now, as we realise that, it is really important we remember what we've just said, that God rescued them first. 
Israel are to keep the law as a response to what God has already done. God gives them the law after he rescued them, not before. It was never the case that Israel had to keep the law in order to earn God's love. God's love was there in the first place, and they were to keep the law as a response. God loved Israel so much that he saved them from slavery. He then gave them the law because he wanted to guide them into the best way of living. If they kept the law, they would live in comfort, they would live in security. As with all of God's covenants, God is 100% committed to this. He will go on loving Israel regardless. He will love them and love them and love them and love them. But he grants Israel the free choice as to whether they want to be part of his project or not. As individuals, as a nation as a whole, they can choose to obey God or they can choose to ignore him. If they choose to ignore then they are choosing to cut themselves off. God promises to love them forever. They are his people. He's committed to them. But he doesn't coerce their response. Because love is never really love if it's forced. So at Sinai, God calls Israel. He elects them. He makes a covenant with them. They're going to be his people. But he invites them to respond in their own way. He invites them to respond with obedience. He invites them to choose to live their lives for him. The third thing that we need to notice about this covenant is that if Israel do choose to obey and follow God, they will be rewarded with even greater intimacy. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, how I brought you to myself... Now, if you obey me fully, keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. My treasured possession. I love these words. If Israel choose to obey, they will be God's treasured possession. Now, the imagery of the original Hebrew here is that of a king or queen's crown jewels. Their most precious objects, which often they keep under lock and key, but they delight to have on. They delight to have them by their side. Now, of course, crown jewels are not the only possession of a monarch. They own a whole empire. But they are the most special. In the same way, God owns and loves all the nations of the world... But here he is calling Israel to something unique. They have been elected to a special responsibility. And when they carry it out obediently, God takes delight in them. He invites them into greater intimacy. It's as if he puts Israel as a crown on his head. They are blessed even more than they were blessed in the first place. This then takes us on to the fourth and final thing we need to notice about this covenant. It is designed to relay God's blessing into the world. As we said earlier, when an MP is elected to a position of prestige 
and importance. That power is not to be used just for their own benefit. They are to use that power to bless and help all the people in their constituency. Well, now listen to how these words end in verse 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, God owns the whole world. He was never just interested in Abraham's family or just interested in Israel as if he only cared about them and stuffed the rest. His purpose was to use Abraham's family in Israel to be the vehicles that carried his blessing out into all the other nations, out into the world in its entirety. So now we're getting to the nitty gritty of what Israel had been elected to do. They are to function as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In the Old Testament, priests did effectively two things. First of all, they declared God's will to the people. They taught the people about who God is and what he has done. They revealed his character to the people. Secondly, they were there to pray. To intercede on the people's behalf before God. To ask for mercy and forgiveness through offering the sacrifices. This is what Israel as a nation are being elected by God to do. They are to teach the world about who God is. Not just through words of instruction but through the integrity of their actions every day. By following God's law and the Ten Commandments that are about to follow, they show the world what God is like. He is holy. By loving their neighbours, by treating them justly, they shine like a light in the darkness. They show the world what God is like. But then also, they have to stand in the gap for those nations that they live among. Rather than exploiting the countries around them, they had to pray for them. They had to implore God's mercy on the people that they live amongst. And if Israel got the two elements of this calling right, the effect would be huge. God's mission of love would progress out past all the borders and boundaries. God's love would flow into Israel and flow out into the world. That's what they were elected to do, to relay God's blessing, to teach the world, to pray for the world, to bring God to the world. I want to conclude now by trying to sum up what we thought about and point out its relevance for us today. At Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with Israel. Years before, as we saw last week, he made a covenant with Abraham. He promised him a family. Well, now that family has grown into a nation. And at Mount Sinai, he calls the nation into a covenant. God has rescued them from slavery because he loves them. He promises to be their God forevermore. 
He asks them to respond in obedience, in love. And as they do that, blessing of God will flow out into the nations. At times in the Old Testament, Israel got this right. They did obey God. The peoples around them were blessed. But more often than not, they got it wrong. Rather like those politicians caught in that expenses scandal of a few years ago, they used their election to line their own pockets. They became proud. They ignored the needs of the nations around them. So again, Israel fell and they needed help to recover. And so as with all the covenants that we're looking at in this series, ultimately this covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. Because Jesus is the one true Israelite, the fulfilment of the nation of Israel. He was the only one who could obey the law in its entirety. And as a result, he did know God's special favour. Might not have been given a crown jewel, but do you remember? This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Treasured possession. And as Jesus obeyed the Father, God's blessing poured out into the world. On the cross, he became the high priest for us all. And these promises were extended to Gentiles, even to us today. We are God's people. We are part of his Israel. But actually, that's still not the end. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Because after Jesus' death and his resurrection, these words that we have just read and been thinking about get applied to the church. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. This is God speaking to us, his church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against the soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Here is the extraordinary thing. Those same words given to Israel at Mount Sinai that were fulfilled in Jesus are then spoken over us. We are now God's people. God has made a covenant with us. He has elected us. We are called to be priests that teach people about Jesus and pray for the people that we live and work amongst. We are called to be a holy nation that shine out like a light in the dark of our world, drawing people to Christ. We began by thinking about Brenda O'Hara. We end by thinking about us. Through Christ we have been elected. A covenant has been made. We are God's people. Will we now obey to bring his blessing to the world around us? Let's pray together.